This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're discussing painting the sky. Imagine Superman flying into the Earth's atmosphere and spraying a mist that reflects the sun and cools the Earth. Ah. Today, we'll talk with four humans about doing that with machines from a cartoon or from a science fiction novel. Scientists studying the possibility of altering the atmosphere to fight global warming call it geoengineering. Others call it hacking the sky. Whatever you call it, the U.S. military, Bill Gates, and researchers around the country are looking into intentionally changing the heavens to an unprecedented extent in human history. Over the next hour, we will talk about the scientific, technological, moral, and political dimensions of geoengineering. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us four people involved with this cutting-edge research. Ken Caldera is an atmospheric scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science, at Stanford and a leading expert on geoengineering. Al Lin is a professor at UC Davis School of Law who studies the governance of geoengineering research. Jane Long is co-chair of the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, a former associate director for energy and environment at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And Armand Neukermans is a physicist and inventor involved in geoengineering. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, everyone. Ken Caldera, let's begin in 1998. You're sitting uh, in Aspen hearing a very conservative scientist talk about changing the atmosphere in a way that you thought was crazy. Yes, I was at a meeting in Aspen in 1998 on how to address the climate problem, and Lowell Wood, who was a protege of Edward Teller, who was instrumental in creating the hydrogen bomb, uh, said that one way to solve the climate problem would be to put small particles high in the atmosphere and that these particles would reflect sunlight back to space. And the sun is what warms the earth, and greenhouse gases prevents that heat from escaping back to space. And so his idea was to offset the effects of increased greenhouse gas concentrations by reflecting some of the sun's warming rays back to space. And I thought that this uh, would make no sense and wouldn't work, because even if you could cool down the Earth on average, I would expect that since the sun warms in the daytime and not at night and at the equator, not at the poles, whereas uh, greenhouse gases uh, block sunlight going out all over the Earth more or less uniformly, And so I thought these things would never cancel, and you'd wind up with big regional or seasonal effects. And we came back uh, and did some computer model simulations using climate models, and it turned out much to our surprise that it worked quite well. And another person in that audience that day, David Keith, also was changed, Mm -hmm. and now he's, he's one of the primary advocates for doing this, right? I would say so. Jane Long, how did you come to discover uh, the sort of uh, fantasy or science fiction of geoengineering? 
Well, I came to Livermore uh, not knowing very much about climate science. I had been working a lot in energy, and I uh, taught myself. I took a, a, I was commuting from Oakland to uh, Livermore and, and took a course in climate science and then ran into people like, uh, like Lowell and, and uh, Ken at Livermore where we began to talk about it. And then I got asked by a, a government uh, official to put together a panel, which we did, because they wanted to hear from scientists about whether or not this was a good idea. And we put this panel together, and, and lo and behold, uh, it wasn't just scientists, actually. We had um, people from, that were diplomats. We had political scientists. We had ethicists on this panel, and a unanimous conclusion that we needed to start looking into this. Technology. And we'll talk more about that in this, in this hour. Armand Nukermans, um, you were involved, there's a group of people involved in developing the inkjet printer uh, at HP. Uh, how does that relate to geoengineering, the, the inkjet printers that many of us have in our homes and offices? How does that relate to painting the sky? Well, the real study is that uh, Ken and uh, Steve Schneider and, and Jim Lovelock uh, came together at our house and they say, you know, well, don't these two guys in Scotland that sort of trying to get some idea going about spraying and small particles? Yes, I worked on that 40 years ago. And so they invited me to Scotland. I say, you know, I'm not going. This is too much carbon and all that kind of stuff. And so, <laughs> anyway, they twisted my arm and I ended up going. And then I said, I'm going to go there to help the guy. Well, they handed me the project. And so because they wanted the project in Silicon Valley. Where you How much scotch did you, after? <laughs> I don't need very much scotch. Okay. One glass is enough. And it was a very good one. There. So, we, we had, so they twisted my arm. And so, I mean, basically it's changed my life. So that's what I've been doing the last six years. And so explain so to us. I, let me just first make clear that you understand none of us really advocates geoengineering. Right? We're, we're saying, look, the research should be done. We, no, none of us reasonably would defend that you're going to deploy this. Right? So let's use that inkjet printer or a glass of milk and explain for us simply what we're talking about, spraying mist into the air that reflects the sun back. Well, this is a relatively simple idea that basically you use the, the, you know, the clouds like a mirror. And this, this particular one, which we call marine, marine cloud brightening, was invented by John Latham, who was an atmospheric scientist in England, and he was walking with his son in Wales, and they came out of the cloud, and some said, wow, look at that. This is like a mirror. And so John started thinking about this and then wrote something, 1990 or something like wrote an article about this, and, you know, who was worried about geoengineering or, or climate change at the time, and so it sat there for 10 years, and then things go on, and people start saying, maybe I have to look into this. So, but this is a relatively simple idea, and, you know, I'm, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, so there's... there's uh, room for some discussion here. But anyway, so, you know, if you look at here at California, when you go to the coast, uh, most of the time the clouds there are very gray, are gray. And clouds are white, it's just like a glass of milk, right? So if I take milk, it looks very white. And if I dilute it, then it gets gray. And there's nothing white or gray in that whole milk. There's just little droplets of, uh, there's water and there's little droplets of fat in it. And the combination of multiple scattering gives you that color. So what happens in the clouds that are um, sort of um, gray, they don't have very many droplets, or they're quite big. And so the idea is that if you can help by a natural means to bring more droplets in there, nuclei as they call it, 
they will become droplets too, and you'll have more scattering. So it will look lighter. The clouds will like. So clouds right. are mirrors. You can make the mirrors stronger and reflect more mm-hmm. heat mm-hmm. up into, uh, bounce it back into the uh, atmosphere, and yeah. it won't warm into the space. Earth into, into space. space. Yep. Uh, Ellen, this sounds like playing God. Who gets to play God? Well, this is a very interesting question raised by these various techniques that fall within the, the rubric of geoengineering. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why geoengineering is a controversial topic is because uh, it's talking about potentially uh, trying to affect, influence the climate at this very broad scale, uh, akin to perhaps, uh, you could say, playing God. And the question is, of course, who would do this? And ultimately, ideally, this decision would be made by the international community, by humanity as a whole, um, how would that be made, though? There's, there's all sorts of questions regarding well, could one country do it on its own or even uh, an individual who had the financial means to try to do this? Um, so uh, all sorts of difficult questions regarding how you would actually manage uh, a scheme like this, even if you could somehow agree to go forward with it. Uh, Ken Caldera, how much research is happening now, today? Who's tinkering with the atmosphere? Um, we're all tinkering with the atmosphere with our greenhouse gas emissions. But, anyone who but, drove here driving in their car now is tinkering with their atmosphere, yeah. fair enough. But no, nobody is intentionally trying uh, to alter the atmosphere, and nobody is now engaged in any outdoor experimentation with geoengineering. Uh, there are a couple of projects ongoing in Europe, in the Germany, and in the United Kingdom, and there are a few projects here in the U.S., but they're all indoors, laboratory, and paper studies. Okay. How do we know that, that the Chinese or the U.S. government isn't doing it in secret? Jane Long? Well, I, I'm fairly certain that the U.S. government is not doing it because the, the, we've been trying for years to get them to start research, and they're very reluctant to do that. So I, I, I don't think they are. I think the Chinese government is doing a lot of weather modification, which is very different. So I don't think anyone has gotten to the place where there's been a global perturbation, and I think we would know. You would be able to detect it from, from observations of the Earth. So if Russia or China launches an ICBM U.S. military knows right away, and you're saying that if Russia or China yeah, I mean, tried to do the this, same... This is a big operation. It would take lots and lots of airplanes, lots and lots of balloons, or whatever delivery mechanism you chose. So you would know. But um, I think the the issue is that uh, um, Al brought up the idea that we have a problem with trying to decide who would do it, and, and that moral or governance issue... But we also have uh, an opportunity here because the the thinking about geoengineering is such a uh, an anathema to people. It's so hard to believe that we should do this intentionally. There's much more moral uh, baggage associated with harming the earth intentionally than all of us drove our cars and used you know did various things to emit carbon dioxide. And as Ken points out, we all changed the climate a little bit today in our activities but we did it unintentionally. It's the intention that makes this really very difficult. But the fact is that we are entering a time in the Earth's history where we can't avoid that intentionality. We know now that we're changing the climate, and so the idea of thinking about this and thinking about the governance concerns of how we would do this may bring us to a place where we actually 
do a better job of that intentional of, of managing uh, this planet. It's the only planet that we have so far to live on. Uh, Alan, you say that researchers are waiting for a social license. What, what does that mean to get a social license to go forward? Well, as, as Ken described, there hasn't been, uh, I mean, there have been a very small-scale kind of marginal uh, field experiments, but uh, there are these researchers who would like to go forward in a very uh, transparent way uh, with uh, further experiments to try to develop geoengineering uh, techniques or to see whether they might be uh, feasible. Uh, but at this point, um, they've held off on going forward because of this sense that they don't have yet a social license. And the idea behind the social license is that uh, they're concerned about the reactions uh, that might take place, and they also want to, uh, I, I think, uh, have a sense that whatever research is produced, the research results are uh, legitimate and will be accepted as uh, legitimate. So at this point, um, we're kind of at a standoff, uh, is my sense of it, uh, where uh, we have uh, a number, a growing number of researchers who are interested in doing some field experiments, um, but uh, a bit hesitant, and hesitant partly because of the social license issue, and connected to the social license issue, uh, a reluctance of uh, various government uh, entities to uh, fund the research. So I see that a Jane little. Long. I see that a little differently. I think there's quite a few people who are ready to do small-scale, very low-risk experiments that are looking at actually how. The, the chemistry and the physics actually occurs. These are small, relatively small, and they uh, try to look at the mechanisms by which particles form and how they reflect and, and whether or not they impact the ozone or other things that would be deleterious. They're ready to go, but there's no money. There's no funding for these projects. It's the government that is holding back on the social license. And I think what's happened in the last few months is that the National Academy of Sciences, for the first time, was asked by the government to produce a report. Uh, uh, and that report on, on geoengineering recommends research. And this has begun to open the door uh, to thinking about funding. I mean, the first act of governance is funding. If you don't get funding for the project, then you know the government has basically governed you out. You're not <laughs> going to do it. So I think there, uh, we, we have cataloged a number of very important experiments, which happen to also be very important for climate science. Uh, you know, one of the ironies of, of most of the geoengineering technologies that are out there is that they involved either aerosols or clouds. And those are two of the things that are, have most of the, a lot of the uncertainty in climate models in understanding how the climate works comes from not having a very good understanding of how aerosols behave and how clouds behave. So there's, a, there's now a body of research that's been defined which would go out in a very small scale and put a few particles in the atmosphere and try to understand what it does to um, what it actually does on a, on a very small scale that would help us understand if these technologies would be effective or advisable. And I think those are the two first things that really have to go forward at small scale and at low risk. I think there are quite a few scientists that are ready to go. I don't think they're waiting for a social license. I think they believe in this. It's What we need is, is funding to move forward. Ken Caldera, you're part of a group that's funded by Bill Gates. There is money there. So um, what is Bill Gates' motivation and what's, what's going on with his money in this area? Bill Gates has created a small fund known as the Fund for Innovative Climate and Energy Research. And I can't speak for him, but I, 
I think he feels that this is an area that the government should be funding, and but because the government's not funding, he stepped in to support some small amount of work doing computer modeling and laboratory experiments. And uh, I, th I think he just sees this as a research area that's underfunded and is trying to step in to fill a gap. Jane Long, what do you think about for-profit or private funding of this type of research? I think it's really important that the government fund the actual physical experiments, the kinds of thought experiments and workshops and things that are being done uh, through private funding, I have no problem. But once we get to uh, any kind of a f an outdoor research project, you very quickly want to see that become programmatic and become strategic. Because as we move from very, very small-scale research with literally no physical risks associated with it, and if you ever move to something that's maybe still very low risk but large scale, say over a 1,000 kilometers or something like that, a 1,000 miles, you wouldn't want that kind of research to be done unless it was uh, publicly available, publicly governed, and, and that was totally transparent to, uh, to everyone in, in the public about what was being done and why it was being done. And you wouldn't want to take any risk at all unless it was somehow strategic research. So just because somebody's curious about something, you don't want to see that funded. You want to see it funded because it builds towards something which is determining whether or not these technologies would be effective, whether or not they would be advisable. And if you're not going to do those things in a strategic, public, transparent way, I think that's a disservice. Jane Long is a former uh, director, associate director at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. This is Climate One. If you're just joining us, we're talking about geoengineering or painting the sky to fight climate change. Uh, Alan, what do you think about private funding and sort of for-profit motivation and how this could be governed? And should this be something that's only funded by the government? Well, I think private funding is a concern. I generally agree with what Jane said about the need for you know, whatever research, field research activities take place to be subject to uh, public accountability and transparency. Uh, and that's much harder to do when you have uh, private funding going on. Uh, some of you may be familiar with an incident a couple of years ago where uh, an American businessman uh, undertook uh, an ocean iron fertilization project out in the Pacific. There's some disclaimer uh, on his part as to whether that was uh, a geoengineering experiment or not. Many people perceived it as a geoengineering experiment, giving, given the background of uh, that particular person involved. Uh, and that was essentially privately funded. It was funded by a, a Native American tribe uh, up in Canada, um, which is actually seeking enhanced salmon runs. But uh, you know, arguably, uh, it was also a type of geoengineering research, which was done without uh, public oversight and public accountability. And there's, there's a lot of concerns uh, about what that could lead to because uh, of the possibility that ultimately some of these activities could be undertaken uh, privately without uh, a public say, without saying say by government over uh, what goes on. Ken Caldera? No sensible person would invest in solar geoengineering with the intent of making money. It's thought that it will be very cheap. If it does get deployed, it's likely many decades away. Uh, you know, There's all these other controversies associated with it. So I do not believe 
that there's any sensible person today investing in solar geoengineering with the intent of making money. Could they do it for ego or power? Or you get a couple billion, you get kind of bored. What are you going to do, you know, with your money? Those are, those are real issues. I think there are, there are all different kinds of vested interests, not just making money. But, and, and protecting society against those vested interests is very important. But, but there is a difference, essentially. You know, look, quite frankly, our society couldn't operate anymore and people would be dying on the street without the private support of NGOs and all that kind of stuff. And if you now see what's going on in science, it's not very different. A lot of the science, even academic, you know, is already funded by private. Look at the Moore Foundation, the stuff that they've come there. I mean, I don't understand it, what they're funding. You know? So what is that essence is here that if you're going to do an experiment, okay, you need the approval of a, of a very competent body. Whoever is going to fund it, that's something else. But you need the approval from you know, who is competent enough to judge that. That's really what's it. And so let me give you an example. Uh, we sort of you know, worked on this for six years. What we're making is a, sort of like a snowblower, but the particles, the droplets that come out are a thousand times smaller. Okay? So we thought it was right, ready for... It isn't quite ready yet, but anyway. So the University of Washington, as was always the plan, is taking this over. And they have two intentions, essentially. One is to uh, study the clouds with this, because they could make and shape the clouds with this and, and study them like they've never done before, and then look at geoengineering. So we're looking for, you know, wherever the money comes from at this point. And what it really comes down to is that we take each one of these sprayers, sprays a half a glass, a half a glass of seawater, okay? That's what it does, all right? Would you need permission to do that? Normally, I mean, you spray this and that, you know, we dump 30 gigatons in the, in the atmosphere or 35 every year and no one asks for permission. So, but in the interest of the controversy, we will seek permission and say, this is the test. You have to have total transparency because of what's happened in the past. People did these tests and they say, you know, we're going to get carbon credits out of this. Well, sure, you're going to get carbon. They turned around very quickly. So you, you have to have the moral ground to say, look, this is the experiment that we're going to do, and we'd like to have approval from a competent body. That makes sense, though. Uh, a lot of this backdrop it came, came out of, uh, as, as Ken Caldera mentioned at the beginning, some of the people involved in the nuclear age. What if this technology, Alan, gets in the hands of a rogue state or uh, a group that is not as well-intentioned as governed as Armand Nukemans just said? You know, could this technology spread like nuclear technology and get in the wrong hands? So I think it's really different than nuclear technology, right? Nuclear technology, when you wanted to learn how to make a bomb, the technology was uh, extremely sophisticated and, and difficult. Here, the technology is actually kind of simple. Spraying mm -hmm. things up in the air is kind of simple. Um, and so the real issue is whether or not you can um, really mount the campaign. And I don't see how you mount the campaign without being noticed. So I, I don't really think that the Could analogy... Could get a bunch of sprayers and spray it over the Middle East? I don't know, right? <laughs> yeah, but the, you know, the, the, the idea that we're loosing a technology, I mean, we've known, people have known for a long time that when volcanoes erupt, they put sulfur in the, in the stratosphere and that cools the earth. It's like, it's not that difficult to understand that that technology works. So it's not, it's not like the sophistication of trying to figure out how to, how to make a bomb. 
Albert Lynn? There are some parallels with nuclear technology. I mean, I agree it's, it's very different in certain ways, but there is the possibility of dual use. That is, just as nuclear could be used peacefully for energy and then for weapons purposes. Similarly, uh, you could see some of the t- technology that's being developed here potentially being used in a military way or at least in a way to disadvantage one's uh, neighbors uh, whom um, one disagrees with. Uh, so there's the possibility of that dual use or the possibility of misuse. Uh, and I think the key seems to be that if you, you know, ultimately did want to go forward geoengineering, you want to do it well, but with kind of the evil use, you don't necessarily have to do it well, right? You may not care about the side effects uh, that we might be cared about or the, the, the negative uh, environmental impacts that might follow from one of these techniques, whereas if you really want to deploy it to deal with climate change, you also want to make sure that the, the, the um, negative uh, are, if you're just joining us, uh, with. Albert Lin is a professor of law at UC Davis. I'm Greg Dalton. This is Climate One. It's now time for our uh, speed round where we're going to ask yes or no question to each of our guests. Uh, and this is intended to be fun, pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, so Ken Caldera, yes or no, humanity is doomed. <laughs> That's easy. No. <laughs> you waited kind of long. Well, I thought, like, it depends what I, I once wrote a paper about in 1.5 billion years, the sun will eventually swallow the okay, Earth's orbit. Yeah, so, right. so we'll give you, in, yeah, in the next billion years, humanity's doomed. Um, Jane Long, for-profit research into geoengineering makes you very nervous. Yes. Albert Lin, if geoengineering goes wrong, lawyers will survive the catastrophe <laughs> and other humans. <laughs> No one said cockroach. So. Yes. Well, I would say there would be survivors. <laughs> Armand Nukermans, the CIA is working on geoengineering, and the NSA is listening to us right now. Is there another option for me? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of gray. Gray like the clouds. Yeah. Uh, Jane Long, if North Korea can hack Sony, they can hack the sky. Yes. Albert Lin, U.S. courts are unprepared to handle the oversight of geoengineering. Yes. Ken Caldera, if Stanford scientists hack the sky, they will do it with cardinal red particles. <laughs> no. <laughs> Armand Nukermans, people in Silicon Valley think their money will protect them from the worst impacts of climate disruption. No. Thanks. That's the end of our uh, speed round. I want to pick up on earlier we talked of uh, the morality of this was mentioned. Um, Jane Long, is it moral to do this research into changing the sky in a, in a hubris kind of godlike way? Or maybe it's immoral not to do it. I think it's immoral not to do it. I think that we have created a situation for our offspring and you know, my grandchildren, your grandchildren, they're the people that will come after us that could be untenable. And it's part of taking responsibility. I think we have to take responsibility for, for the earth because that's where we all live and because that's where our children and their children are going to live. And so the need to learn how to take responsibility is paramount in our survival. You asked, are, are we doomed? We're not doomed if we take responsibility, and we Ken, need to do that. Ken Caldera? One of the main reasons why I'm working on this is that climate models project that with business as usual, carbon dioxide emissions, every summer in the tropics, 
will be nearly every summer in the tropics will be hotter than any summer yet experienced. And in these extreme heat events, there's often widespread crop failure. So there's some potential for widespread famines. And it's possible that these technologies can save hundreds of millions of lives. We don't know if that's true, but there's a possibility. And so I think we would be remiss not to study these things. I think that concern comes with our ideas about our relationship with nature. We like to think, and maybe we would like for the world to be basically a natural place where we carve out a little man-made part in this natural world. And this idea that humans are managing the entire planet and there's fundamentally no more nature is a concept that we need to grapple with and I think is disturbing to people, and rightfully so. Man's dominion. Albert Lynn. I think we have to be careful about uh, research. Um, I'm not opposed to research as a, in principle. Uh, I, I think, you know, when we think about, well, research generally produces knowledge, and knowledge is a good thing. We want to know more about these things, to know what to, to do, whether to move forward with these technologies. Uh, but there are concerns regarding, you know, what the net effect of research is. That is, what role does any individual project play? You might say, well, a particular experiment doesn't produce much risk, but is it part of this larger scheme whereby ultimately we move down this road where uh, we've invested so much, where we've created uh, vested constituencies, uh, whether it's companies or scientific communities that are interested in going forward because they have a personal or financial or professional stake uh, in moving forward with the actual deployment and not just the research. I think that's a very real danger we have to uh, be aware of and uh, be concerned with, uh, assuming that research, field research does go forward. So I was preparing for this. I was thinking kind of like Botox. You know, you start with a little Botox, and then you start doing more and more, and then pretty soon you can't stop. you got to keep doing it or else you look bad, right? So is, is there a point of uh, lock-in, Ken Caldera, where once it starts, we're down a slippery slope, you got to keep shooting that stuff in your skin? I basically oppose the development of institutions that would do this research in that I think it's really good when, peop- when there are cloud physicists at University of Washington who are mostly doing other things, who spend some fraction of their time on this, because I don't think we want to create a cadre of people who have a vested interest in seeing all of this go forward. I, I would feel much more comfortable to have scientists who are working on other topics spend 20% of their time working on this, which is the kind of level of involvement that I'm really at. Jane Long, once uh, funding starts flowing to universities and labs, they're going to keep that money That's flowing. Right. They want to see their right. papers published, and they have a, their career is staked on that success. That's right. And I, I think these are real problems, and these, these are the, some of the more difficult vested interest problems we have. We also have you know, people that just really want to save the world, and I'm really glad they do, and they want to come up with good ideas, but they need to be checked. So I think they're eventually... You know, Ken's model for getting started makes some sense, but eventually if you keep pursuing this, you're going to have to have some institutional controls and you're going to have to reward people for saying this is a really bad idea and we shouldn't do it. And Ken Caldera, if we started this geoengineering again at Climate One today, we're talking about painting the sky and putting aerosols and making clouds brighter so they reflect heat up into the atmosphere and cool the earth. Once that started, if it stopped, what happens? If, if a system were deployed full scale 
and then stopped right away, it would be a lot like a volcanic eruption, which puts material into the sky and then it falls out. If you kept doing it for a few decades and, then the, the, and it was masking lots of warming, as, as soon as you stopped, all that masked warming would come at you pretty rapidly, and so you'd see very rapid warming. And so there, there would be incentive to try to phase it out slowly if it wasn't working. You wouldn't want to turn it off all at once. Let's talk about some of the regional impacts. Ken Caldera, uh, we've been talking at a global scale. What are some of the ways that this could be done at a regional scale in California, the southwestern U.S.? Most of the research so far has been at a pretty global level, and one of the things that I would like to research but haven't gotten around to, and there's no funding for anybody else to do it, really, is to look at uh, this idea uh, that Armand's working on of making the clouds wider. It's possible that whitening the clouds in the Pacific off of Los Angeles or San Francisco could help bring moist, cool air into the desert southwest, or, or the, there's coastal fog is going away with global warming, and that's threatening the coastal redwoods, and it's possible that these approaches could bring more uh, clouds and fog into the coastal redwoods. And, and so this cloud brightening idea has potential for regional scale alterations of climate, but nobody has yet even begun investigating I, I want to. I really want to second Jane that. Long. Yeah, the... the I think what's happened here is because there hasn't been a coherent program, very few people have begun to think about this. And the governance issues for the global ideas that came up uh, very early on, you know, we're going to put stratospheric sulfur everywhere, it's going to reflect, and the whole world is going to become uh, lower temperature. Um, The governance that goes along with that is just totally non-existent. But the idea that we're going to get specific local regional climate problems and people are going to push very hard to deal with these heat waves or we're losing our crops or we're losing our redwoods, these things are, I think, are going to become very palpable. And I think they will drive uh, a need for, uh, for technology that really hasn't been invented and the sci- there's no uh, body of science that Ken's quite right. There's no program now that looks at what you might call extreme adaptation. And yet the governance of that type of uh, activity is probably uh, a lot easier. So if you've had a heat wave for a month and every year you get a heat wave and it's a little longer and it's a little hotter, somebody's going to want you to do something about it and there's going to be a huge amount of pressure. There's going to be a ballot initiative in San Francisco, do we want more fog? And then right, people have to vote, right? More I think, fog, more I, mass, I, right? Can that, you imagine? That's right? way more likely than having You're the whole it. world vote to have solar radiation management at a global scale. Ken Caldera. I think there's often an assumption that deployment of these technologies will be widely unpopular. But if you're in Phoenix and it's over, you know, it's getting to be 120 degrees and there's no rain and somebody having spraying some seawater off of Los Angeles can make you have cooler weather and moister weather or if you can preserve the redwoods. I I was at a meeting where uh, there was a a fellow there from Ghana who who stood up and said, if if we're having crop failures and, and we think that putting aerosols in the stratosphere can cool the weather and allow us to grow our crops, we would be all in favor of it. So I think the question is how, we don't really know how bad climate change will get. And maybe it's something we just adapt to and it's not really so bad after all. But if it really does turn out to be catastrophic, 
there could be real demand to do something quickly. And these kinds of approaches are the only things that politicians can do that will cause the earth to start cooling within their term in office, within their political careers. Energy system transitions take half a century or more. And energy system transitions don't cool the climate. They prevent it from warming further or warming so fast. And so the only thing that we can do to cool the planet or that society can do to cool the planet is deploy these sorts of technologies. Uh, So does the possibility, Jane Long, of a quick technological fix mean that we can go about our carbon-intensive lives and keep driving big cars and flying around and eating steak and like, well, well, you know, I can take a pill later. I don't have to diet. I can get gastric bypass surgery or whatever it is and live live happily? You know, there's just no silver bullet here. And basically, these technologies are not going to work if we keep emitting. I think one of the most important things about climate science that most people don't understand is that that all that carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere stays there for a really, really long time, like a thousand years before it decays. And so if we stop tomorrow, if we stop emitting tomorrow, we still have everything that we've put up there to deal with, which is continuing to warm the earth. So if you keep emitting and you keep emitting, you can't keep up with it with any of these technologies. The only thing that we can think about is this might take the edge off for a while while we finish this energy transition that we have to make. Um, and, and maybe we have to go farther. Maybe we find that not only is that energy transition not enough, but we have to take some of that carbon dioxide that's up in the atmosphere now and take it out. But the first thing and the most important thing is the energy transition. If you don't do that, nothing else is going to work. Albert Lin, does this create a moral hazard? The possibility of even thinking about this means that there's a pain-free way out? We don't have to do all these hard changes here on Earth? Well, I think it's important that um, geoengineering ideas and, and you know, whatever research is done is done openly. It's done in a way, if it's done, that it's done in a way that um, is explained for what it is that the flaws are made clearly apparent. I mean, even if you could develop these technologies fully, as, as Jane says, there, there is no silver bullet. All of these mm-hmm. uh, proposed techniques have their limitations, uh, and in particular, the ones that seek to deflect radiation do nothing about greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere and therefore wouldn't deal with uh, the problem of the increasing acidification of uh, the oceans. I think the probably the most significant piece of the moral hazard problem is with respect to the politicians. That is, as, as Ken referred to, there's you know a need to to the extent you need to show something you're doing something about climate change to show you're doing it in the near term, and it's it's very easy to say well we are working on this thing this geoengineering we're doing more research and when the research comes we'll fix the problem and it's much easier to say that than to say well we need to do this energy transition much sooner and we need to invest the money up front yes it'll cost money now but later it'll pay off and we really need to you know uh, make a little bit of short-term sacrifice. Ken Caldera, I mean, Washington can't even agree to pave roads and do some simple things. How are they going to agree on anything com- as complex as this? Well, you don't want to touch that one. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, trying to turn our government from a dysfunctional government to a functional government is beyond me. So, uh, but, um, now I forgot what I was going to say. The moral hazard, the oh. idea of uh, oh, oh the, uh, just to say that there's been a few uh, small focus group um, studies where they 
told people about these solar geoengineering, I, first I asked people, how much are you willing to work towards uh, developing an energy system that doesn't dump its waste into the sky? And then they, they talked about uh, these solar geoengineering ideas and then asked them again at the end, you know, are you willing to, how much are you willing to work towards an energy system transition? And people, after hearing these crazy solar geoengineering ideas, were more willing to put uh, greater effort in, into changing our energy system. And I think part of the idea is that if, if the scientists are so worried about climate change that they're thinking of these crazy ideas, maybe we should take it seriously. Also, I, I've spoken with people who, who think that climate scientists is garbage in, garbage out, and they just make the models to give whatever answer they wanted. And if, if the climate scientists were doing that, we wouldn't create climate models that said these solar geoengineering things would work. And so I think it shows that, that the scientists are being honest brokers and saying that this is what the physics says. And so I think it adds to the credibility of the climate science. Ken Caldera, you put out a tweet today as a link to a, a climate uh, geoengineering article, and someone tweeted back, don't do it. And you said, don't talk about it. But the fact is, even having this conversation is controversial in some quarters. Some people think, don't talk about it, because if you talk about it, it might happen. That would be bad, so shut up. Uh, there are people who think that this conversation is a distraction away from the more important conversation about how do we change our energy system. But I think it really motivates the discussion about changing our energy system because if you think about these solar geoengineering options, you recognize that if we continue dumping our greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and forever put more and more aerosols in the sky, that that's an ugly, ugly end game. And so these things don't get you out of the need to change our energy system. And I think that once everybody recognizes that we need to change our energy system, maybe we might actually do it. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. If you're just joining us at Climate One, we're talking about geoengineering, increasing the brightness of clouds and other interventions in the atmosphere to reflect heat up into the atmosphere and cool the Earth. Also joining us here are Albert Lin from the UC Davis School of Law, Jane Long from the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Armand Neukerman, a physicist and inventor. I'm Greg Dalton. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Spray painting clouds to deflect sunlight may sound like science fiction, but what's wrong with that? Many of the ideas dreamed up by science fiction writers have come true, from robots to space travel. Kim Stanley Robinson, author of the Mars Trilogy, says that immersing ourselves in fantasy can be more than an escape. It can also be a useful tool for change. So you read a fiction in which the climate has changed in the future, you might find it reassuring. You think, well, I'll be dead before that happens, so that's their problem, not my problem. On the other hand, you could take it as a warning. You could think, well, I want a decent life for my grandchildren. So at that point, imagining what it would be like can be vivid. You spend time living in that world, because that's what fiction does. You are in a different world. It's telepathy, it's time travel. Reading fiction is a very powerful experience. So I believe that if it's done right, it can change one's view, and it helps you to make decisions about what do I do today to help the situation for my grandchildren. So the science fiction double vision, the temporal 3D, the 4D vision, is really a, a useful tool for figuring out what to do now. It's a philosophical tool. That was writer Kim Stanley Robinson discussing the merits of science fiction at Climate One. 
Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. This is Climate One. We're talking about painting the sky and reflecting heat back into the atmosphere to cool the earth. I'm Greg Dalton. We've been talking a lot about the sky, Ken Caldera. Let's talk briefly about the oceans. There's a lot going on in the oceans. It's absorbing a lot of the carbon pollution. And there's some discussion about tinkering with the oceans, too, as a, as a way to buy some time or address climate change. So what's going on there? Well, there are a number of things that people suggested doing with the oceans. One is this idea of fertilizing the ocean to have it draw in more carbon. Another idea is to put big pipes in the ocean to mix cold water up to the surface and cool the earth that way. Or people, uh, as far back as 1965, have suggested uh, putting white particles on top of the ocean to send more uh, sunlight back to space. And my own view is that none of these are particularly good ideas. Uh, I think they're worth investigating a little bit more, but none of them seem particularly wise to me. We're talking about painting the sky at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. My name is uh, Stanhope Gould. I was a member of a CBS News team in 1971 that began a year-long series called Can the World Be Saved? For all the good it did. Um, my question is about timing. Uh, in the book Quest, it says that coal use is worldwide is increasing uh, because of poor people who are looking for the good life. Uh, Lester Brown says uh, the melting of glaciers and depletion of aquifers is the greatest threat to human food security in history. All of the scientists say that this is happening much faster than they thought. My question is, can anything be done with the people you're talking about? Can this be a factor? Jane Long, you've looked into the energy mix. Uh, briefly tell us, uh, coal is cheap, it's available. Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's a lot of tools that have to be put on the table to solve this problem. Uh, I don't think it's going to be very easy to stop coal use, and so we better start looking at something called carbon capture and storage where when we burn that coal, you capture the CO2 and put it underground. And I don't think that those kinds of solutions are going to be um, forever solutions. I think we've got a transition period and we've got a long-term period, and we need to start looking at what that transition period is. How do we decarbonize quickly? Nuclear power is another example. I mean, nuclear power produces an awful lot of energy without carbon dioxide, and we're turning off our nuclear power. You know, in California, we've lost 2,000 megawatts of, of nuclear power. We've uh, lost about a third of our hydropower, which was carbon-free. We've added 17,000 megawatts in the last 10 years of solar power, which only delivers about 8 megawatts, uh, 1,000 megawatts, because the capacity factors for solar, I mean, it's only when the sun shines, so you only get about a third of it. And um, at the same time, we've added 30,000 megawatts of fossil energy through natural gas. We should be capturing the carbon dioxide from that and putting it in old depleted oil reservoirs and getting it out of the atmosphere because we can't get away from it fast enough. So that we need to put the tools back on, more tools on the table, and the tools need to be tools that are about carbon, not about renewable energy, not about nuclear power, not about you know, how you feel about it. It needs to be about carbon. Carbon needs to drive the energy system. Ken Caldera, I heard that question as a plea for hope. Like, someone wants, is there hope? Give me some hope. What's hopeful? Well, I think 
the hopeful part is that it's within our technological capability to build an energy system that's consistent with environmental principles and that it's not that expensive and it's not really that hard to do. That economists estimate it would cost a few percent of GDP, which would be maybe a quarter of the military budget or 10 or 20 percent of the health care budget. So it's solving this problem is smaller than other things we're already engaged in, and we can do it if we can develop the political will to do it. We have the technology, we have the money can be there. Let's go to our next question in Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, on the topic of geomodification, now we have seen efforts of that earlier in terms of cloud seeding and so on and so forth, and that was driven primarily by commercial impulse, agriculture, so on and so forth. As we develop the technologies and research them, isn't it likely, given the governance issues and that the major roadblocks are such, that we'll see people attempting regional commercial applications first. I know many of our farmers in the California Central Valley would jump on any sort of geomodification that could promise them additional rain now. And both given the pace of research and what we saw in cloud seeding the tendency for charlatans or snake oil salesmen to get involved in a business like that, is it likely that any attempt at geoengineering will come from that angle first on a reasonable scale and either destroy the reputation of it or that we will then have to try and get a handle on that regulatorily before we even have the option of addressing the real climate issue. We'd like to tackle that, the idea of hucksters getting into geoengineering, helping farmers. That's, uh... <laughs> I think it's possible, but you know, the, the, um, I, I think there's a lot of things that are uh, futures that are possible. Let me, let me, you were bringing up uh, Lucy and this guy with diamonds. How about imagine? So imagine that the world becomes a place where the enemy is climate change and the military is out there fighting the enemy. I mean, maybe that'll happen too. I have no idea, but these are things we should guard against. And I think you have to also have to, the speaker, you should, uh, your, your question is, is um, predicated on something that is uh, very far away from global geoengineering. So if you're going to do, try to seed for rain, which we do now all over the place, uh, and people do it for different reasons. The reasons are changing. People have tried to make rain because there's drought, but people are also beginning to try to make rain out over the ocean so that their land doesn't flood. Those are, those are things that are beginning to happen. Um, that's very different than a global uh, modification, a global intervention in the, in the climate. King Caldera, think about drones. Uh, drones are technology. Technology often outpaces policy. What, get put together drones. And, you know, people could do all sorts of things that they couldn't be done before. Could that happen with geoengineering? I think the question raised by the questioner is a real one. We've seen this already with iron fertilization. And uh, you, know, you could imagine... You know, if you can cool the ocean surface, that that could bring more cool, moist air into California, and there could be a lot of incentive to do that. And, and I think this is why we need governmental involvement in this, and, and that we should avoid having the private sector uh, run with this without the proper governance. So, our next question in Climate One, we're talking about painting the sky. If you're just joining us. Uh, hi, my name is Gerald Harris, and I specialize in energy scenarios. But I want to push back against some of the things I've heard up there. Uh, one is termed silver bullet. That's, to me, very loose language. No one says we need such a thing. And I think the real silver bullet, as we all know, is a carbon tax. If you raise the carbon tax <laughs> to $150 a ton, you will quickly take a lot of carbon out of the system. You will quickly generate the kind of economic change and technological innovation 
that we need to do this. Most climate models forecast those kind of temperature changes 50 to 100 years out. 50 to 100 years is a lot of time for technological, technological change and, and energy efficiency in a lot of other areas. So I want to push back against some of the scare tactics I'm hearing up there. We are not in an emergency. We don't need a surface bullet. Who'd like to tackle that? Ken Caldera? Well, yeah, I think many of us here on the panel are in complete uh, agreement. And I don't think, I think we all agree that an energy system <laughs> transition towards a clean energy system is what we need. And that I'm not saying that we're ever going to need to deploy these kinds of things. And, you know, there's a tale of distribution of how bad climate change might be. And in my central expectation, we're never going to need any of these kind of global-scale technologies. And there's some chance off on the tail of the distribution. And I think it's worth investigating. But I did an op-ed in the New York Times, and I said even in terms of research dollars, at least 99 cents of every dollar should be going towards an energy system transition, and this should be a little minor component. In terms of deployment, it's probably thousands of times more an energy system transition. And so I think we would be happy to be here talking about the need for energy system transition without even mentioning geoengineering. Let's go to our next audience question, Glenn one. Hi, my name is Wayne, and I appreciate your comment, Jane. We're coming on tipping points here. The Arctic is really beginning to melt faster. Greenland is beginning to melt faster. Uh, the, the glaciers, the pine, pine cone glacier, the Twaite glaciers coming into the Edmonton Sea are, have been shown to be unstoppable. That's only four feet of sea level rise, but others are all happening at the same time. Tell us some good news. I don't have any good news, Ray. <laughs> and and I, I, part of what I'm so upset about with, the, with you, Ken, is, well, it could be a problem. Climate change is a long, fat tail slope. Once we go up high, once we, we do some sort of tipping point and, and release the methane and the, and the permafrost, there's a very slow, long, long line that can last tens of thousands of years. And we All have right. very little time to get off of carbon before... There will be no hope. Thanks. So we've heard here that you are alarmist and that you're too sanguine. So yeah, let's... No. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I do work on coral reefs. I think that we'll, if, with business as usual, usual emissions, there will be no sustainable coral reefs left on the planet within a few decades. We're doing a study now on uh, that is concluding that if we continue on a business as usual scenario, we'll end up melting all of Antarctica. I'm pointing to Antarctica. <laughs> and, 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 you know, which would eventually, over thousands of years, many thousands of years, lead to something like 200 feet of sea level rise. And so, but I, I think that humans can live in a world with chicken McNuggets and McBurgers, and this is not the kind of world we live in, but it doesn't cause us to starve to death. And so, I think this is a question about what kind of world we want to live in. I don't think climate change is really an existential threat for humans in the same way it's an existential threat for, say, coral reef ecosystems. And lots of other things. Let's go to our next audience question at Climate One. Welcome. I'm curious. Are these radical schemes being funded by the fossil fuel industry? No. Yeah. Albert Lynn? I, I don't have anything to add to that except to say that there is a concern that they have an incentive to support these sorts of schemes or ultimately deployment. Uh, so, yes, in terms of, you know, 
Because it allows them to continue, continue business, as, business usual. as usual and profits as usual. Well, let's go to our next question here at Climate One. We're talking about painting the sky and reflecting heat back up into the atmosphere. My name is Elijah Brooks. In order to get my degree in electrical engineering, I had to study thermodynamics. Uh, I've known about global warming since the early 70s. I do think it is an existential threat. And I'm going to paint one scenario right now. We have a runaway reaction with the release of methane. Methane happens to be flammable. There's enough of it gets released. There's some sort of an ignition source. A fire starts. The fire then creates a runaway reaction, creating more methane release. And the next thing you know, we got a big problem on planet Earth. Can anybody debunk that for me? Explain the big methane release. People are concerned about methane from tundra or under the sea. Ken Gildera. Yeah. yeah, there's a substantial amount of methane. The frost is melting. That's the from, per, per, there's a substantial amount of methane locked up in frozen soils uh, in Siberia and northern Canada and Alaska. And the concern is that as the soil melts from global warming, it releases a potent greenhouse gas that could lead to further warming. And this is a risk. Most scientists think that most of the methane will get consumed by microbes and it will come out as CO2, but there is a very small chance that there'll be substantial methane release, which would lead to a lot more warming. I think they actually, the, if the methane burned, that would be probably the best thing for the climate system because it has a lot more of a heating effect as a greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. And so this particular scenario it, it isn't... Uh, a concern, but you know, again, I think most climate scientists think that this idea of that lots of methane will come out is a very low probability event, and that's the kind of extremely low probability event that we might think about wanting to deploy these kind of geoengineering options to address. Next question, welcome. Um, my question's based on recognizing intent to be the primary reason for a social license. Uh, are there other reasons we might need social license, such as what if the bad guys spray something else besides seawater? What if they cause flooding or steal rain? Albert Lynn? Well, we're not terribly well equipped to deal with those sorts of situations. <laughs> as you know, we don't have an international legal regime governing all sorts of activities. We generally govern things through nation states. We don't have uh, a very strong liability regime either. There's all sorts of issues regarding how do you even show causation? How do you trace the harm? Did you suffer harm? What's the baseline? That is, what would have happened if a particular uh, thing hadn't been deployed? So those are all sorts of difficult questions, which I think would need to be wrestled with uh, if you got to the point of some sort of global deployment. We have to end it here. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at the Department of Global Ecology at Stanford. Also with us today at Climate One, Albert Lind, professor of law at UC Davis, studies the governance of geoengineering. Jane Long, a co-chair at the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And Armand Nukerman is a physicist and inventor. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs at our website, climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club listening online and on air. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit.
nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.